Welcome to Men's Health Monthly with Dr. Tom Walsh, Director of the University of Washington's Men's Health Center and Associate Professor of Urology at the UW, featuring important topics dealing with men's health, including prostate cancer and erectile dysfunction. Here's your host, Neil Scott. Welcome back to our special series on KZOK, Seattle's classic rock station, and Sports Radio 950 KJR. It's another edition of Men's Health Monthly, featuring Dr. Tom Walsh. It's a look at many important issues that affect men specifically, including prostate cancer as well as sexual problems and mental health problems, which we will talk about this month. My co-host, Dr. Walsh, is an associate professor at the University of Washington, and the director of the UW Men's Health Center. He is with us every month to offer his knowledge and insight into men's health issues from prevention and education to information on advanced treatment options. Now, this month, our special in-studio guest is Dr. Paula Slater. She's a psychiatrist in private practice here in Seattle, specializing in depression, anxiety, and relationship problems including sexual issues. Now, let's begin this month with questions for Dr. Walsh from listeners. Here's the first question. It's from Ralph in Lake Forest Park. I'm a 45-year-old man. I listened to your show and decided to go in for a medical checkup, which I hadn't done in three years. So that's that's certainly good news. Thankfully, everything checked out. Then I encouraged my dad to do the same, even drove him to the doctor. I was surprised to find out that his doctor did not do a prostate test, saying he was too old and that they don't do them after a certain age. He's 72. Is that correct? I love the question because I think this comes up a lot. What we like to think about less about chronological age, if we're going to screen somebody for prostate cancer, Mm -hmm. is what is somebody's life expectancy and what are the competing risks that somebody may experience when it comes to their longevity. We do know that as men age, their probability of developing prostate cancer increases significantly. But it may be that our question asker's dad, you know, went to a physician who is thinking a little bit more about old guidelines where there's a great fear of over-detection of prostate cancer. And I think in the last few years, we've seen some of the more prostate cancer detection-friendly guidelines, if you will, where we think it's important to screen men, healthy men, with a 10-year life expectancy for prostate cancer. And for this man, this 72-year-old man, if he has a 10-year life expectancy, we would say certainly he should have a serum PSA, that's a prostate-specific antigen, and he should have a digital rectal exam. Now, I'm missing some information here. If his father is already dealing with lung cancer, if he has severe congestive heart failure, if he has something else that is going to impact his longevity for the next 10 years, then maybe his doctor's right. Maybe screening him for prostate cancer really isn't meaningful. A question from uh, William Slauson. I saw an ad for a pill called, and I may have this wrong, Onyx, O-N-Y-X, the little black pill that is taken every day reportedly does what Viagra does, but also stimulates arousal and sex drive. I believe the drug is called Testafen, and there's a double-blind study I read about in a journal. Is Do you know anything about that? This is news to me. Oh. I am unaware of any U.S. FDA-approved double-blinded placebo-controlled trial of such a drug, and it's hard for me to imagine when I hear something that's a little too good to be true, it I think it's too good to be true. And what we do know is that there's very minimal linkage between a man's serum testosterone and his 
sexual performance. And I think there's now data accumulating that sometimes these supplements, they are bad for you. I think they do a couple of things. I think some of them have untoward side effects and may alter normal biochemical pathways that that we don't want to alter. But I think in some ways they also set expectations and delay people from seeking really appropriate therapies that could solve their problems. You know, what I would caution our listenership is about the supplement industry. I think what we need to remember here in the U.S. is that supplements are not regulated by the U.S. FDA, and therefore most of their budget is placed into marketing. Mm. And I think it's absolutely true that if it seems too good to be true, it, it really probably is. But it speaks to the, the need, the desire of, of men out there to improve their sexual lives. I would much rather see somebody go see their primary care doctor, ask about their health, ask about their cholesterol, ask about their hypertension, be screened for diabetes, and be treated by a specialist for their ED. And so I'd much rather see people investing in treatments that have proven effectiveness, proven efficacy, things that we know can restore them. If you have a question for Dr. Walsh, drop it in the anonymous inbox. Uh, just send it to Men's Health Monthly at iHeartMedia.com. These are, these are really good questions. Yeah, they were this yeah, month. Yeah, really good questions. Our special in-studio guest this month is Dr. Paula Slater. She's a local psychiatrist who specializes in depression, anxiety, and relationship difficulties, including sexual issues. We will discuss all of those. Dr. Slater, are depression and anxiety connected somehow? Well, definitely. And most people, or at least 50% of the people who get depression also have an anxiety diagnosis. For some people who have very serious problems with anxiety, it's demoralizing. And so the depression is secondary to the problems with anxiety. But very often they just appear together. Do people often confuse depression with sadness? Sure. Or mourning, of course. And But sometimes... Both of those things become extended and become abnormal. Like there is such a thing as prolonged mourning or abnormal mourning, and that we treat that like depression. How does this play into sexual matters and, and relationships? Got to say, depression and anxiety both are big libido killers. Mm. Unfortunately, some of the treatments for depression and anxiety are also libido killers or may have other sexual side effects. Yeah, the medication. Not all and not in all patients, but that's the truth of it is that sometimes that happens. Paula, when you talk about um, these major depressive episodes and this sort of merger of sadness and mourning, what, what are the most common symptoms that you encounter in your practice. Let's use it. Let's take a, a man, for example, since this is the Men's Health Monthly. Yeah. I mean, what are the things that somebody's going to come to you saying, hey, this is what I'm experiencing? Well, it's quite common for them to wait until they're having problems at work or problems getting to work to come into treatment. And that's especially true for men. Men are less likely than women to seek treatment for depression in particular, unfortunately. And also for men, Unlike women, they may not feel subjective sadness. They might feel irritable mm. or hostile, less interested in things that they normally like to do, trouble getting going, trouble engaging, and just wanting to withdraw from the world. That's really interesting. So what I think what I heard you say is that sometimes men don't manifest as a feeling of sadness. That's right. Uh, that they may manifest as agitation, irritation, anger, aggression. Yes. And I can imagine that really gets them into trouble. Yes. All of that distances them from the people in their lives, which is another 
factor, a risk factor yeah. for depression, and it makes the situation worse. So, so it's possible to be depressed and not even know you're depressed. Yeah, that's right. And there are some people who don't have much of a vocabulary for their emotions, but I have met a handful of patients who have trouble coming up with emotion words to describe their experience. They'll tell me what they think, but not how they feel. So I give them a vocabulary. Do you feel sad? Do you feel angry? Do you feel irritated? Do you lash out at your family more frequently than you used to? Do you ever find yourself crying for no reason, which is also a symptom less common in men than women? This is a fascinating discussion. It's going to make me rethink things because it strikes me that how common it must be for men not to get to you. Right. Um, So what resources are there then for men who are thinking that they may be depressed or their loved ones are thinking they may be depressed? What's the pathway to understanding this and taking action to help treat it? Well, I think it's helpful to read about depression, but I don't recommend just reading blogs on the internet, for example. I always tell my patients, please look at, if you're going to look on the internet, look at websites that are attached to a, a university or like the National Institute for Mental Health. I'll tell you, I think primary care docs treat more depression than I do, possibly. I mean, because that's who patients go to first in a lot of cases. And they don't come to me unless their doc thinks this is getting a little complicated or I think we need to bring in a specialist. Is there denial then on the part of the patient when they have to come to see a psychiatrist? There are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with that and they feel uncomfortable. Until they get into the office, we try to make our offices comfortable and more like a living room than a exam room, for example. But for sure, the stigma against mental illness is still alive and well, unfortunately. So this idea of the pivotal role of the primary care physician is a message that I, w- I really want us to broadcast. Yes. Yeah. Because I think one of our missions in this program has really been to help drive men to care, to drive them to primary care. So one option for men who are not connected to primary care and listening to what Dr. Slater is saying is you can go to uwmedicine.org. You can get yourself a direct appointment with a provider in the UW Medicine Network. And that also checks off the box that Dr. Slater indicated, which is universities are a great way to connect to information that's vetted and, and usable. But that's a great way for, for somebody to find an appointment or a primary care provider. If they're not connected to a computer, they can also call 206-520-5000. What are some of the symptoms of depression? Well, um, I think a big symptom, especially for men, is feeling less involved, wanting to be less involved in things that you used to enjoy, not wanting to go fishing if you previously did that on a regular basis. For some reason, all of a sudden, it just isn't enjoyable and you just don't feel up to it. Or not wanting to see your friends, not wanting to be social. Problems with sleep, either sleeping too much or not sleeping enough. Problems with your appetite, and that can also go both ways, eating, overeating, or not being able to eat, or just not having an appetite. And then problems with concentration, that's a big one as well. And a lot of these symptoms are not necessarily recognized by the individual, but by someone close to them. That's right. And it may go on for a while before people around them recognize it, or or until the individual does. You know, the biggest problem in my mind is thoughts of suicide. Mm. Of course, that's the gravest. 
most concerning symptom of what are some of the statistics uh, regarding suicide and, and age and gender so women attempt suicide more than men but men complete suicide four times more than women in this country we know it's because men are more likely to use a lethal method and that has a lot to do with firearms unfortunately older men are more likely to suicide Tom and I came up with different statistics, and I think I understand that's sort of shifting, and it is getting, the suicide rate is actually going up right now, which is unfortunate. The biggest risk group is white men 85 years or older. What is that attributed to? Well, Just end-of-life issues? It may, be, it may be illness. It may be some feelings of hopelessness. Losing a partner, perhaps? Losing a partner. Social isolation is a huge risk factor. If you're getting up there in those years, you may have lost some friends. You may have lost your partner. Your family might live far away. So those are all issues. How do you intervene in a situation like that? What is the suicide prevention? Well, I would say see them often if you're a physician. Get any lethal means out of the house. So for gun owners, Washington State, concerned family members can call the police and ask them to remove firearms from the house of their of their loved one. So Neil, I just wanted to provide you some statistics from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We were talking about statistics. I, I think a, a lot of our listeners may be surprised to hear that suicide is the 10th most common cause of death in the U.S., Wow, uh, which I think is shocking. But as it pertains to men, in 2017, men were about three and a half times more likely to die of suicide compared to women. And in 2017, and I realize we're a little away from that now, the demographic that was most common to die by suicide were middle-aged men, so men over the age of 40. Now, that's not to say that perhaps there aren't more efforts in older men, but I think this is really germane to our discussion here, given, given the title of our show and what's, what's really important, mm-hmm. the message we're trying to broadcast. We talked about the stigma surrounding depression. The, wow. the stigma surrounding suicide is massive. It's Even massive. after the event takes place, what it does to the family, to those survivors, even in obituaries, I mean, you never see took his own life. You right. just see died suddenly. I would think that a lot of people who do die suddenly that took their own life, we don't know that. Right. Yes, that's right. And I like to tell my patients who are who are having thoughts of suicide, that if they commit suicide, they increase the risk of their family members, especially their children, of, of completing a suicide in their future. Talk more about that. That's important. So children of parents who have suicided, they're much more likely to have depression and complete suicide in their lifetime. But it's not just children. It's also acquaintances. So it could be close friends, could be other family members. This is an event that has much bigger consequences than the victim usually believes that it will. In fact, they may be under the delusion that everyone around them is going to be better off, Mm. which is really not the case at all. If one suspects that someone they know or love may in fact be suicidal, what can they do, Dr. Slater? Well, I would encourage them to get that love, talk to that loved one, tell them not to do it tell them the reasons they shouldn't do it, and ask them to get into treatment. Help them get into treatment. If you have to call their primary care doc for them, make an appointment and take them to it. Get all the pills out of the house. 
Make sure they don't have firearms in their house and don't leave them alone. What are some local or national resources that people can fall on in a, you know, in a, in a, in a period of difficulty or crisis? There's the National Suicide Hotline. There's also in here in Seattle, the Crisis Clinic. The National Suicide Hotline, by the way, is 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. And um, the Crisis Clinic is... CrisisConnections.org. If you've just joined us, I'm Neil Scott, and you're listening to Men's Health Monthly on Sports Radio 950 KJR and KZOK, Seattle's classic rock station, featuring Dr. Tom Walsh, director of the UW Men's Health Center. And this month, our special guest is Dr. Paula Slater, a Seattle psychiatrist who specializes in depression, anxiety, and relationship problems, including sexual issues. And a quick reminder that the month of September is National Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Have you been screened? And if not, why not? Visit the Prostate Cancer Foundation for a free download of the Prostate Cancer Patient Guide. It's pcf.org. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the treatment for depression and what to do if you or someone you know might be suicidal. We'll also give you some call-to-action resources right after this. Did you know that diabetes, heart disease, and prostate cancer procedures can contribute to erectile dysfunction? Many men aren't aware of this or of all the treatment options that a board-certified urologist can offer. Understand your options and learn where you can find an ED specialist in Seattle to help. Visit edcure.org to get the facts and find a urologist who can offer treatment options that work when pills and injections don't. Again, that's edcure.org. Did you know that 42% of all cancer is preventable? One in nine men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year. But the Prostate Cancer Foundation is funding the science to change that. Risk factors for cancer include family history and genetics, but also lifestyle factors like smoking and diet. You can be a partner in your own health care with just a few simple changes. This September, during Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, go to pcf.org to download your free exercise and nutrition guide for living well beyond cancer. I'm Neil Scott, and welcome back to Men's Health Monthly, featuring Dr. Tom Walsh, director of the UW Men's Health Center, here on Sports Radio 950 KJR and KZOK, Seattle's classic rock station. Our guest this month, Dr. Paula Slater. She's a local psychiatrist specializing in depression, anxiety, and relationship issues. Dr. Walsh, talk about the good news about depression. I always like to say, when, you know, for example, obviously what, what Dr. Slater and I do in our day-to-day work in, in helping patients is very, very different. And I, I think a lot of what we do is education and we learn about a, a patient's disease but and we teach them about their disease and then we move on to talk about treatments. And so, you know, in many ways sort of learning, it's hard to hear about the st- statistics of suicide and depression but what always excites me is the next step, which is to say these things are – depression is treatable. It's totally um, true. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that. You know, what I tell patients who who feel bad about having depression, shame is part of depression. Anxiety, shame, feeling guilt and remorse that are just irrational and out of perspective. I tell people you didn't choose this depression any more than anyone chooses heart disease or high blood pressure. Or erectile dysfunction. Or erectile dysfunction, yeah. right. We can do medication and we can do psychotherapy. Those are the well, two things that I offer and that most psychiatrists offer. People who get both do best. 
many of my patients who come to see me and are seeking therapy for something very specific are, I think they are interested in what can I do on my own? What can I do without medications? And so I'm going to ask the same thing to you. Yeah. Um, we started the show with a question about a dietary supplement that was yeah. the end-all, be-all. Right. I'm confident that there are similar things out there for depression. But what do you tell your patients who are resistant to, you know, taking an antidepressant pill, who are fearful of the side effects? What are the th- what are the things right. that you can advise your patients to? Well, and I'm particularly interested in, in in the men who you treat. These are the things that will make you less emotionally vulnerable in general, and it depends on how severe your depression is as to whether or not these things will work. If you think of taking care of yourself, it's stuff you already intuitively know. Treat physical illness. Don't wait to go to the doctor if you're sick. Take care of yourself. Get adequate sleep. Eat a nutritious diet. Avoid mind-altering substances. Alcohol is a depressant, so it may make you feel better in the in the moment, but ultimately it will make depression much worse. This is Washington State. What about marijuana? There's not a lot of data on marijuana, but it doesn't look as harmful in terms of depression as, say, alcohol is, although it may be sort of a relaxant in the way that alcohol is. But another thing that I want to put in a plug for is meditation. Meditation is very, very helpful and easily accessed. You really just have to sit and be, be mindful of one thing in the moment. Don't be judgmental. When your mind wanders, bring it back to the whatever it is you're paying attention to, your breath, sound, a piece of chocolate that's in your mouth. It could be anything. But learning how to meditate is very, very helpful. For what advice could you give someone, a man who's listening to this program, who wants to find out more about how to meditate? How to meditate. You can take a meditation class, and there are many places in town that offer meditation classes. There are many meditation apps. One is Calm. If you just look on your phone at apps for meditation, you'll find a lot. The other common meditation app that I've seen is Breathe. Depression makes you want to withdraw. You know, the more you go with an action urge associated with an an emotion, the stronger that emotion gets. It's sort of like why it's not good to attack or yell at or even you know, attack in your mind, a driver who cuts you off because you st- it makes you stay angry. But if you can do the opposite, then that emotion kind of subsides and you can get a new emotion on board. So for depression, the opposite action is get involved, get active, go get some exercise, go see your friends, because those are the things that will make you feel better. We started uh, tonight talking about that crazy black pill yeah. Uh, that does everything. Is there a medication that increases the libido? As far as I know, no. If a couple comes to you that's experiencing sexual difficulties, mm-hmm. uh, low libido, mm-hmm. what do you advise them? Well, I want to make sure they had a good medical workup first to make sure there's nothing metal that's causing that problem. The wonderful thing about couples is when their relationship is strong, when they feel lots of trust in each other and enjoy being together when their communication is strong, that usually leads to better sex. Mm. I I guess I would ask, how do you get at a man's functionality? I mean, we know statistically that if a 50-year-old couple walks into your office, that he has probably somewhere around a 60% chance of having 
moderate to severe erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. You know, if we want to talk about, you know, a feeling of shame and a feeling of loss, there's a huge amount of that that comes with ED. I'm curious how, on your side of the equation, how you get at that. Can you, do you, do, do you bring that into the discussion and yeah. does it also come into the treatment paradigm? Well, I absolutely encourage as much frank discussion as possible. And it's hard to talk about sex. Sometimes even couples talking with their own partners have a hard time talking about sex. The language is cumbersome. I try to make it less cumbersome, less uncomfortable. Let's just lay it on the table, talk about what's going on. And then really encourage them to maybe, depending on where they're at, talk about or perhaps Engage in activities where the goal is not sex, but the goal is to be physically together. Maybe just touch each other, maybe massage, maybe snuggle, just to rebuild that intimacy. If you're just joining us, I'm Neil Scott. He's Dr. Tom Walsh, director of the UW Men's Health Center, and our special in-studio guest is Dr. Paula Slater, a psychiatrist in private practice in Seattle who specializes in depression, anxiety, and relationship problems, including sexual issues. Tom, talk about patient expectations when dealing with a primary care provider. We shouldn't always have the expectation that we're going to go in and get a pill to fix that or be told that we need test X, Y, and Z. I think part of being connected to primary care or connected to any doctor is, is being educated and being poised to take the next step when it's necessary. And so I think that's my call to action. Dr. Slater, how long should a patient take medication for depression? Well, that depends. I always encourage people to take an antidepressant for at least six months because I want to make sure they're out of the woods before they try to go off of that mm. medication. Another factor is how many major depressive episodes have they had? Because we know from research that if you've had one episode, the odds of relapsing after you go off of your medication are about 30%. If you've had two, it goes up to about 60%. Mm. If you've had three, it's very close to 100%. As we wrap up uh, this edition of Men's Health Monthly, let's talk about a call to action. Let's talk about some resources that people who are listening right now can turn to that are good resources I'm going to let Dr. Slater give us some good calls to action for mental health. But, you know, my call to action is our connection to primary care. Yes. Um, I'd, I'd love anyone who's listening to this program, whether you're a loved one or you're a man who's listening, and you don't have a primary care provider or you're not seeing a doctor for routine checkups, get one, do one. And, and I'm putting doctor in quotes. I'm talking about a health care provider. One way to do that, you can do it through UW Medicine by going to uwmedicine.org. You can make yourself an appointment online. If you don't like that online option, you can make a phone call. It's 206-520-5000. You can be appointed with a primary care provider. Dr. Slater, what are some resources in terms of, of depression, suicide prevention? So for depression, I love the idea of the person you're going to get to see soonest. In Seattle right now, it's pretty hard to get an appointment to see a psychiatrist, which is always surprising to me. Like my patients, some of them have waited two or three months before they get the, to see me for the first time. It's just because there aren't enough of us. So don't wait that long to talk well, that, to someone. That really Go. speaks about the proportion of disease to provider, right? It's right. not that there's right. there sure aren't does. people willing, able bodies. It's just that it's such a prevalent disease, it depression. Sure is. And it, it's frightening to think that 
when you finally recognize that you need to see someone, you can't see someone for months. That's right. It's it's like the alcoholic addict who finally says, okay, I want to go into treatment, and there's no beds available. There's no beds, right. It's true. I mean, it's not always the case, but, but yeah, sometimes it's quite a wait. So don't wait that long. Go see your primary care provider. Get started on something. If you are thinking about suicide, of course, call the suicide hotline or crisis clinic. Immediately. Immediately, mm-hmm. yeah. And tell somebody close to you. Crisisconnections.org is the website for the Crisis Center here in Seattle. That's crisisconnections.org. It's 866-4, the, the number four, crisis. Don't isolate. Don't isolate. Don't isolate. And get keep moving. Don't go to bed and stay in bed all day. Get up, go outside, get some sunshine. Even if it feels like you're dragging yourself, the, the mood will follow. Very good advice, Dr. Slater. Dr. Walsh and I both thank you so much for your insight on depression, anxiety, sexual issues, and suicide prevention as well. That wraps up another edition of Men's Health Monthly featuring Dr. Tom Walsh, University of Washington professor, surgeon, and director of the UW Men's Health Center. You can reach out to Dr. Walsh with any questions or comments at 206-598-0937 or email questions to menshealthmonthly at iheartmedia.com. Men's Health Monthly airs on the last Tuesday of every month at 8 o'clock on Sports Radio 950 KJR and on the last Sunday of every month at 6.30 a.m. on Seattle's classic rock station KZOK. Again, special thanks to this month's guest, Seattle psychiatrist Paula Slater. And until next time, for Dr. Walsh, I'm Neil Scott, wishing you good health and good sense in matters dealing with men's health. Thanks for joining us on Men's Health Monthly. You've been listening to Men's Health Monthly with Dr. Tom Walsh, Associate Professor of Urology at the University of Washington and Director of the UW Men's Health Center, and your host, Neil Scott. 